0: Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Something Old, Something New, Introducing Africana Philosophy. Philosophy in the minds of many people is something essentially European. This podcast on the history of philosophy, even before it branched out to include Indian philosophy, already revealed this to be a distorted perspective. It set out to tell a continuous story beginning in ancient Greece with the pre-Socratics, and going forward from there, and this led to philosophy in the Islamic world. A whole section of the series of episodes on that topic did cover developments in Muslim Andalusia, and it is true that, at least the last time we checked, Spain and Portugal are part of Europe. For the most part, though, the thinkers of the Islamic world lived well outside of Europe. Several, including the most influential of all Muslim thinkers, Avicenna, hailed from Central Asia. With the series of episodes on Indian philosophy, this podcast went on to look at a story that does not have its origins in ancient Greece. Whatever we decide to believe about the mutual interaction of ancient Indian and classical Greek thought, it's clear that ideas from Greece were not the main spur to philosophical reflection in India. Of course, for many listeners, it was not a huge surprise to hear of the existence of philosophy in India, and the same would go for China. Eastern philosophy is something most of us have at least heard of if not studied. In fact, those who have not been formally trained in philosophy may, ironically, be even more open-minded about Indian philosophy than those who have. But what about African philosophy? For many people, perhaps most, the phrase will conjure little more than a big blank spot, Some will immediately doubt that there is any such thing, suspecting it to be a case where the word philosophy is being applied far too liberally in every sense of the word. Others may be perfectly willing to assume that there must be such a thing as African philosophy without being able to think of anything that might fit the bill even if you have no idea what Confucius or the Bhagavad Gita say, you're likely to have at least heard of them, just as if one lacks both philosophical training and good taste in podcasts, someone might have heard of Plato without being able to name a single dialogue. But who are the familiar figures of African philosophy? What are the major texts? Are we even talking about a tradition in which there are known figures and texts? In this new series in the podcast, we hope to remove some of this mystery we'll be devoting dozens of episodes to philosophy in Africa, as well as in the African diaspora. That last part is important. This series will introduce you not simply to African philosophy, but to what is known among specialists in the field as Africana philosophy. Our purpose in this first episode will be to explain what Africana philosophy is and what we plan to cover in the episodes to come. Our topic is on the one hand very new, and on the other hand, very, very old. It is new in the sense that the term Africana philosophy has only been in common use since the 1990s. The philosopher Lucius Outlaw, currently at Vanderbilt University, is generally credited with coining the term. We can also credit another philosopher, Lewis Gordon, currently at the University of Connecticut, with playing a major role in popularizing it. Yet Africana philosophy is arguably the oldest philosophical tradition of them all. As we will discuss in our next episode, If Africa is where we became what we would now recognize as humans, there is good reason to think that Africa is where we first did philosophy. Philosophy in Africa, though, is only one component of Africana philosophy. It is an umbrella term that includes African philosophy, Afro-Caribbean philosophy, African-American philosophy, African-Canadian philosophy, and so on. Chike, by the way, is from Canada, which means that while he is passionate in spreading the word about Africana philosophy, he does it very politely. In other words, Africana philosophy does what we've already said. It covers philosophy on both the continent of Africa and in the African diaspora. Perhaps we're explaining the obscure by the obscure here, though, and should say what we mean by diaspora. It's a word of Greek origin, meaning dispersion, and it was first used in relation to the scattering of the Jewish people outside of what is now Israel it has since become a word that is used for the scattering of any people beyond their traditional homeland, with its application to Africans being perhaps the most prominent example. The transatlantic slave trade, which brought Africans to the Americas in large numbers from the 16th to the 19th centuries, is of course one of the most important instances of the dispersing and scattering of people in the modern world. Given this rather broad agenda, you can after all expect to hear some familiar names in the episodes to come, and even the names of authors who are regularly included in readers of philosophy that do not focus on Africana thought. Take Martin Luther King Jr. Some of the most popular introductory anthologies of social and political philosophy in the last few decades have included his Letter from Birmingham Jail and his March on Washington address, also known as the I Have a Dream speech. Such anthologies have therefore encouraged the inclusion of Africana thought in courses on social and political philosophy. We too will, in due course, discuss the philosophical dimension of King's work as a thinker and leader in an episode of this series. Even the broadest agenda, though, must leave some things out, so let's say something about the material we will not be discussing. The astute listener will have noticed that, according to what we've said so far, Africana philosophy would include a lot of what the podcast has already covered. Quite a number of thinkers dealt with in previous episodes lived in Africa for all or part of their lives. Most appeared in the series on the Islamic world. For instance, the Jewish thinkers Saadia Gaon, who worked in Iraq but was born in Egypt, and Maimonides, who worked in Egypt but was born in Andalusia, so he's a European philosopher too. Then, there were various Muslim thinkers from northern Africa, like Ibn Khaldun or Muhammad Abdu. But here's something we easily forget. The Roman Empire held substantial territory in northern Africa. So, there were also numerous ancient philosophers of that region. Plotinus was from Egypt, Augustine from Tagast in modern-day Algeria. That in itself should be enough to satisfy anyone that the term African philosophy is not an empty one. But there's much more to say that has not already been said in this podcast series. We'll be dividing the material into three parts, the first of which is entitled Locating and Debating Pre-Colonial African Philosophy. We will begin in the next episode by going as far back as we can possibly go, all the way to the Middle Stone Age in fact, to explore the idea that Africa is the first place that anything we could call philosophy was ever done. After that, we will begin to look at the history of recorded philosophy in Africa, treating ancient Egypt as one of the two earliest birthplaces in the world of written philosophical thought, with the other being ancient Mesopotamia, which we will devote an episode to discussing just for context. We will stay in ancient Egypt for a few episodes, before moving on to written philosophy in ancient medieval and early modern times in other areas of Africa. We will focus especially on philosophical writing in Ethiopia and on Islamic philosophy in sub-Saharan Africa, the latter giving us a chance to fill a gap left in the original series on the Islamic world. I would like to reassure you that this gap was intentional because I was already planning to deal with sub-Saharan Islamic thought in this new series. Sadly, I can't because I'm a philosopher and only offer reassurance by saying things that are true. With our look at Ethiopian philosophy and sub-Saharan Islamic philosophy, we will once again be rejoining the tradition of philosophical writing that can be traced back, however indirectly, to ancient Greece. Indeed, to our knowledge, there exists no currently accessible body of pre-modern philosophical writing from Africa after the time of ancient Egypt that is completely unconnected to the Greek tradition. As is well known, before the European colonization of Africa in the modern era, The majority of African cultures were oral cultures, that is to say, cultures without writing. Does that mean that the majority of African cultures in the pre-modern era were cultures without philosophy? This has been a topic of some debate, but we think there is much to be said for answering the question with a firm no. Indeed, it will take us a number of episodes to tour through some of the sources and ideas that scholars of African philosophy have located in African oral traditions. The topics we will discuss will include the nature of time, the character of God, the development of the human person, the ethics of communalism, the question of gender, and the relationship between knowledge and destiny. Together with the earlier episodes on written philosophy, these episodes on philosophy and oral traditions will hopefully provide you with a useful introduction to philosophy in Africa before European colonization. What happened to African philosophy once this colonization took place? One rather ironic result is that it became possible even to use the concept of African philosophy, since this was not a designation that pre-colonial African thinkers had any reason to use. The training of Africans at universities in Europe or at universities in Africa, structured in accordance with the model of European education, brought it about that 20th century African philosophers began to publish books and articles about the existence and content of African philosophy. Hence our title for this first group of episodes, Locating and Debating pre African Philosophy. For what developed in the 20th century under the label of African philosophy was indeed in large part a series of debates among self-described African philosophers about pre-colonial African traditions. A number of scholars sought to retrieve the philosophy that could be found by studying oral culture in Africa. Eventually though, a reaction sprang up against this. Some argued that African philosophy is something new, something that Africans must create in the present without pretending that it can be extracted from ethnographic descriptions of traditional life. In the context of this debate, creative compromises were often proposed. For example, one might go beyond mere ethnographic description by interviewing wise people who live in relatively traditional communities. Such people might be able to describe, and also critically reflect upon, their people's traditions we will spend some episodes looking at the different positions in this debate, even though now, in the 21st century, it is no longer so central to the practice of African philosophy. It remains worth discussing, for one thing so that we can understand the development of the notion of Africana philosophy, and for another thing because of the broader methodological issues raised by the debate. Having done all this in the first part of the series, in the second and third parts, we will broaden our scope to include philosophy in the African diaspora, This is not to say that we will have finished talking about philosophy on the African continent. We will look at how people in both Africa and in the African diaspora thought philosophically in the modern era in the wake of the transformative events of slavery and colonialism. The second part will look at Africana philosophy in the 18th and 19th centuries, while the third part will sketch the development of Africana philosophy in the 20th century and beyond. Some of the topics that we will discuss in these two parts of the series will be the precise nature of the wrongness of slavery, the question of whether violence is a justified response to the oppression of Africans through slavery and discrimination, the role of self-improvement in overcoming oppression, the question of whether people in the African diaspora ought to try to escape oppression by returning to Africa, the intersection of racial oppression with gender oppression, the psychological effects of being shaped by European culture while being black, the importance of art to Africana identities, the extent to which the African diaspora remain connected to African cultures, the role of socialism in gaining freedom, and much, much more. Listeners will be introduced to a wide range of philosophical thinkers, from Anton Wilhelm Amo to Kwame Nkrumah, from Frederick Douglass to Franz Fanon, from Anna Julia Cooper to Angela Davis, from W.E.B. Du Bois to Stephen Biko. We hope you will stay with us on this journey through a rich philosophical tradition, one which has only recently gained recognition among professional philosophers for its depth and variety. But let's return now to a question that we seem to have already answered. What is Africana philosophy? We've said that it is philosophy from the African continent and diaspora, That seems clear enough, or at least no more mysterious, than the application of the term philosophy in a phrase like Indian philosophy or philosophy in the Islamic world. But let's consider the surprising results this definition may have by discussing a celebrated work of philosophy from the late 20th century that arguably fits the definition. The book we have in mind is Mind and World by John McDowell, first published in 1994. This is a bold work on the metaphysics and epistemology of experience, according to which our passive experience of the world is not prior to and separate from conceptual thought, but is in itself conceptual. It's one of the most influential monographs in English language philosophy of the last few decades, and its author was born, raised, and educated in Africa, in Boxburg, South Africa to be specific. McDowell also received his initial post-secondary education at what was then called the University College of Rhodesia and Yazaland, an institution that is known today as the University of Zimbabwe. So is Mind and World, since it was written by someone born and raised in Africa, a work of Africana philosophy? This is certainly not how people usually think of it, McDowell is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and if we have to associate his work with any geographical space, it is natural to think of him as a representative of philosophy as it is practiced in the United States. Furthermore, to state the obvious, for most people the fact that McDowell is a white man is likely to prevent Africana philosophy from leaping to mind. After all, the phrase is often understood to be more or less interchangeable with philosophy done by black people. Still, it remains the case that, on the very broad understanding of Africana philosophy we've sketched so far, mind and world would count. So does this mean that listeners should expect to hear about McDowell in one of the episodes to come? Perhaps somewhere between our discussion of Malcolm X and our discussion of the black feminist epistemology of Patricia Hill Collins? The answer is no, and it's important that we say why, and along the way, Note that mind and world would not be part of our story even if McDowell were a black South African. In order to count as Africana philosophy, at least for the purposes of this podcast, the work in question must not only originate from Africa or from the African diaspora, it must in some sense be distinctively Africana. This may sound vague and even circular, but let us explain. One obvious way in which a philosophical work can be distinctively Africana is if it is concerned to a significant degree with the experiences, problems, and strivings of people in Africa or the African diaspora. Most of the material we cover in the second and third parts of the series will be distinctively Africana in at least this sense. The Ghanaian philosopher Kwasi Wiredu points us though in the direction of another way in which a philosophical work could be distinctively Africana. Uredu responded at one point to another philosopher's treatment of an article of his, that is, an article of Uredu's, as a fine example of African philosophy, the article in question being Kant's synthetic a priori in geometry and the rise of non-Euclidean geometries. Uredu disagreed that this article could currently be counted as a work of African philosophy, although he noted that he would be happy if it were to eventually count, and that he even hopes that it will. But how could the article's categorization as African philosophy be a matter of hope for the future, rather than a matter of immediately placing it in its proper category? Ruedidou explained, If an interest in the sort of problems in the philosophy of mathematics that I discussed in that article never develops in African thought, and no tradition emerges on our continent into which my article might naturally fit, then it would not be unjust to exclude it from African philosophy. Notice the flip side of this statement, if many other Africans do take up philosophy of mathematics, particularly in a way that is shaped by the concerns and methods of his article, there would be no good objection to calling it African philosophy. The point here is that philosophical work on any topic can be called Africana philosophy just so long as it is part of a tradition that is recognizable as somehow special to the continent or the diaspora. To label a work of philosophy Africana philosophy on these grounds is similar to recognizing British empiricism as distinctively British, saying that German idealism is distinctively German, or accusing French pro-structuralism of being distinctively French. As will eventually, with any luck, be shown in the History of Philosophy podcast, these European traditions are not distinguished by an explicit focus on the experiences, problems, and strivings of people in Britain, Germany, and France, Rather, they are distinctive approaches to philosophical thought that became associated with those places through the work of British, German, and French philosophers. Most of the material we will cover in the first part of this series will be distinctively Africana in something like this second sense. We will be exploring philosophical traditions that can be described as either completely indigenous to Africa, or as in the cases of Ethiopian philosophy and sub-Saharan Islamic philosophy as cases where people in Africa absorbed and domesticated philosophical thought from elsewhere. But none of this applies to McDowell's Mind and World. It is hard to see what justification there might be for describing it as part of a distinctively Africana philosophical tradition. Just like Wiridu's article on the philosophy of mathematics, it is a work that is partially structured around an interpretation of the thought of the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, Wyridu's article and McDowell's book are thus connected most clearly to European and Euro-American traditions of thought, so it makes sense to classify them as such. Of course, something could simultaneously be part of the tradition known as Western thought and part of Africana philosophy on our stricter definition of the term. King's letter from Birmingham jail includes a number of references to Socrates as a model in whose footsteps King is attempting to follow and what could be more emblematic of the Western tradition than an American thinker modeling himself on Socrates. Yet King is at the same time an African-American thinker whose letter takes up the question of how best to achieve freedom and equality for African-Americans, so this is also a work of Africana philosophy. King's letter also contains a now iconic quotation of Augustine's dictum that an unjust law is no law at all. The name of Augustine returns us to the issue of thinkers in North Africa who were part of the Hellenistic and Roman worlds of late antiquity. Would they also count as contributing to Africana philosophy on our stricter definition? Would it make sense to see Augustine as part of an African tradition of thought? We are not going to take a position on this question, but we are going to point out someone who has, namely the Kenyan philosopher D.A. Masolo. In an intriguing essay entitled African Philosophers in the Greco-Roman Era, Mazzolo discusses Augustine, and also Origen and Tertullian, as church fathers whose African identities may be relevant to understanding their thought. Though we are convinced that the phrase Africana philosophy is a useful one, we wouldn't claim that it is always easy to decide what is covered by the phrase. One should proceed on a case-by-case basis, deciding whether a given author or text is usefully illuminated by applying the term. It seems quite clear that it illuminates little or nothing in MacDowell's Mind and World, and a great deal in the case of King's Letter. As for the works of St. Augustine, we leave it to you to investigate and decide. In our next episode, we'll be looking back much further than the time of Augustine. Indeed, we will look as far back in the history of human thought as possible. We'll be exploring the question of whether Africa is where philosophy was born, next time on the History of Africana Philosophy. Thank you.